Again, just thanking the Lord for the kind grace from him to be able to read and study and see what he has revealed here. So last week, we saw verses 1 through 4. We spent most of our time in 1 and 2 at the end of the message as a fitting finale for really chapter 2 for sure, 20 to 23, perhaps even broader than that. Today, we're going to see it also as a very fitting introduction or foundation for everything that's left in the letter, particularly through chapter 4, verse 6. Almost see these four verses in between chapter 2's long list of do-nots and chapter 3's long list of some put to death but also put on and all of the commands, 25 or even more commands, depending on how you count them, that are coming. And verses 1 to 4 are fittingly appropriate to put before every one of those commands and every one of those thoughts. So, I think it's a key and important passage, one of the better sections of of Colossians that most people know and are aware of, but hopefully today as we hover over it, it will become even richer and more meaningful to you. So, we know from chapter 2 that any and all self-made religion, that was language near the end of the chapter, that humans come up with, that originates here on earth, may look to our eyes like it's wise. But the truth is, every one of those efforts that's circulating primarily on earth is worthless or powerless to ultimately, as the chapter ends, stop indulging the flesh or help us stop indulging the flesh. Ultimately, none of us can truly do this. God alone must. So all of these prohibitions in chapter 2 that do not work, God now is going to lay out for us a far better way, a way that honors him and what he has done in our salvation. And verses 1 through 4 begin the groundwork for that. In one sense, we could think of the first word of chapter 3 being instead or in place of. So from verse 8 in chapter 2 to the end was do not, do not, don't let anyone talk you into this, don't let anyone judge you on this, don't be pressured into doing these things. Um, so instead, now is God is going to take us on a very sharp turn, and he is going to start commanding us. There's some here, but particularly in the, in the verses that will follow. And these are the things he says that will make all of the difference. So, simple title, trying to keep it simple, to be truly sanctified, seek heaven's, not earth's help. One way we could outline this is to look at just the main ideas. There's two commands in these four verses. They're at the beginning in the first two verses, seek and set your mind. Both of them emphasize things above. And then we're given really three whys in the following verses. Verse one, because that's where Christ is and where he's raised us to. Verse 3, because that's where your real life is. It's hidden, it's unseen, but it's there. And verse 4, because ultimately Christ will reveal from there his glory and our glory in that as well, making it all visible. Or another way we could think of it is God takes us upward in the present back in time to the past and what he has done, and forward to what he is still yet going to do. 
And then this got, back up just a second, this got completely out of hand with alliteration, but in here we will see his past provision, his present priesthood, the perfect place in which Christ is located, the powerful protection that we're provided in him, and the prodigious presenting that is coming at the end. In short, we're going to see that abiding in Christ, or like 2.19 talked about, clinging to Christ, here defined as setting our hearts and minds on him, is the only real way to fulfill chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which is receive him and walk in him and be rooted, built up, and established in your faith in him. And I think it's important to clarify, the things identified in chapter 2 look hard to the human eye. I want a vision. How do I get a vision? I want strict control of my body, whether it's my diet or whatever it might be. How do I do that? And we get caught up in that. But I want to say that walking by faith and carrying out verses 1 through 4 are not an easy matter. But it's where and how we find true life, real help, real joy, real peace. Let's ask the Holy Spirit now to do his work. I'm going to use the words of a song. O Spirit, lift our eyes to Jesus. Help us see him in your word, the hero of our great redemption, suffering Savior, risen Lord. Over clouds of sin and sorrow, raise us up to see our King. O make our hearts to burn within us, open our eyes and we will sing. Spirit, lift our hearts to Jesus. Make his love our sole delight. With ever-living bread from heaven, hungry beggars satisfy. Overwhelm our cold hearts with kindness. Wake us up with good news of grace. Oh, lift us up to taste his goodness. Come and set our souls ablaze. Amen. So verse 1 of chapter 1 is another if. So you see an if back in chapter 2, verse 20. And really it's the sense of since. If you're truly in Christ, no one is saved by him without being raised from a dead state to a whole new life. That's an integral part, if you remember back in chapter 2, verses 11, 15, of our union with Christ. So he's saying, just like Christ's body, physical body, was raised from a literal grave to heaven, so our spirit life has also been crucified in him and now is raised to a radically different life. And part of what Paul is going to press here is that life takes place not only on this earth, but ultimately in heaven, from heaven. So a reminder of Ephesians 2, 4 to 6, that we looked, 4 to 7, that we looked at last week as well. Uh, many of us have memorized this section because it's just so rich with the gospel. But in here, God's mercy, his love, uh, has raised us from being dead to make us alive together with Christ. That's one incredible reality. And then Paul goes on and stretches it even more and raises up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this whole idea of being raised is not simply to a new spirit life here on earth, but ultimately to be seated with him in the heavenlies. It's a much radically different life than most of us, even those of us experiencing it, are really tapping into and realizing 
and using. So Paul is just saying here is a foundational reality of your life that you've been given. Or the way it's worded in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, and we could say a raised, a born again creation. The old nature, the old way, all of that is past, and behold, the new has come. And the next words, all this is from God, not from us. So Paul's basic point here is not only will you never find anything here on earth in yourself or in others that's capable of helping you spiritually and doing the work in your spirit, you now have the very life and power of Christ to draw on. Why would you not draw on that? So, given that you're raised, here's the command. Seek the things that are above, where you have been raised to in spirit. And verse 2 ends also with, or begins with, the things that are above. In other words, our spiritual help cannot come from earthly things. It has to come from things greater than we can find here on earth, from spiritual sources. Ecclesiastes really makes the same point using different language. If you look for meaning and happiness under the sun, you'll never find it. It is meaningless, it is nothing, it is empty, it is miserable. But it's when we look beyond the sun to the creator as Ecclesiastes finishes that we find our hope, our joy. So the idea of seek here, it's not a hard word, uh, but I think important for us to dwell on because it's used so much in Scripture. God calls us so often, as we'll see here, to seek. In one sense, it's prayer. So if you think of Matthew 7, 7 to 11, where Jesus taught us that we are to ask, we are to seek, we are to knock. Everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, everyone who knocks has it opened. Jesus then gives two illustrations of how a father will not give his son a stone if he asks for bread, and if he seeks a fish, he won't give him a serpent. And his point is, even earthly fathers know good gifts to give to their children. How much more will your heavenly father give good things? But notice the ending, to those who ask or seek him and seek it from him. So the call here is to search for those riches that only seekers find and enjoy, seekers of God, and invest yourself in his word and in prayer and in communion with him to gain those. The wording of things that are above is intriguing. We immediately think heaven, but as we noted last week, this isn't about eternity and the things that are there, though they give us hope and motivation. But ultimately here, God is just distinguishing, don't seek the things that are below or that are on earth that can't ultimately help you. You need to look vertically rather than horizontally to the Father, Son, and Spirit. We will either turn to the world's stagnant, lifeless ponds or to God's waterfall of living water. So Jesus taught it this way in Luke chapter 12. Don't seek or don't make your life be consumed by what you're to eat and what you are to drink and in our culture and what you are to play and all the things you are to do about this life. All the nations, all the humans, all of mankind is seeking after these earthly things, 
but your father knows what you need. Instead, far above those pursuits, seek, there it is again, his kingdom and these things will be added. So Sam Storms defines seeking as a conscious and deliberate move of the soul to fix and ground itself, indeed to glut itself in the beauty of spiritual realities as opposed to the trivial and tawdry things of this world. They all are offered and given to us in our salvation. They're all intended for our help. The way that Paul put it in his letter, to his, in his second letter to the Corinthian church in verse, chapter 4, verse 18 was, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And why? Because the seen, things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. So in short, the call here is seek God. Seek God in everything. Desire and pursue him, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Know that everything we need ultimately will come from him. So very, very quickly, uh, actually, yeah, very quickly, all you're going to do is see him. I'll send them out more. We won't spend a lot of time on them here. But David's prayer in Psalm 27, one thing, and, the, and that comes out of verse 8. The Lord has told us, seek my face, seek communion with me, seek relationship with me. Make that your highest priority. And so David's resolve is, that's the one thing I'm going to ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell there, that I may enjoy his presence and communion with him and ask or inquire, have all of my needs met in him. First Chronicles 16 and Psalm 105, 4. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Seeking seems to include, as we'll see in these next verses from the Old Testament, pursuit, focus, hunger, thirst, desire, worship, and carries the idea of time and persistence and effort on our part. So, Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, diligently, seriously, with all of my heart, I seek you. And it goes on to describe why. Because my soul is thirsty and my flesh faints. It's too weak. Deuteronomy 4.29. Seek the Lord, you'll find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. So J.D. Greer reminds us, a Christianity does not, that does not have its primary focus, the deepening of passions for God, is ultimately a false Christianity. No matter how zealously it seeks conversions or how forcefully it advocates righteous behavior. Being converted to Jesus is not just about learning to obey some rules. Being converted to Jesus is learning to so adore God that we would gladly renounce everything to follow him. So in a world that does not seek God, we are not to mildly do it or simply think we've sought him a little bit more than the rest of mankind, but we are to see it as the tip of the iceberg of all that we can enjoy in the Lord. Now, Paul doesn't leave it generally there. This verse goes on, and he identifies, he zeroes in, particularly the preeminence of seeking things above is that's where Christ is. And his role there is critical. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So Colossians is teaching us earlier 
that Christ is in us and we're in Christ. And now it's teaching us that being in him also means that he is in heaven and we are seated there with him. Two pictures, two sides of the coin that are capturing the all-encompassing, universe-filling Christ. Four things we'll just quickly touch on here that I think are part of why we're given this perspective. One, as we just sang about with Christ being king, he's shown to be in the place of highest possible honor in all of heaven. Psalm 2 that Chris prayed just a little bit ago, or Philippians 2, 9 to 11, that because Christ humbled himself as Jesus of Nazareth took on the form of a servant, even though he's a glorious king, became obedient to the point of death and suffering, as we just remembered at the Lord's table, and Colossians 1.20 and 2.14 both highlight. Now because of all of that, God has highly exalted him. That's part of this picture of putting him at his right hand and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So ultimately it buckles every knee and every tongue because he is so worthy of all that worship. Secondly, this picture captures a picture of the union and unity of God the Father and God the Son working together in tandem for our good, but ultimately for their glory through what they do in us. Third, it's a place of authority, kingship, lordship, where we see that he is not only stunning and majestic as a savior, but equally as a lord and king, a voice whom we must obey, a master whom we follow. And fourth, perhaps where some of your minds went right away, it is where Christ actively works, intercedes, represents us before the Father. For without him doing this, none of us would have any chance with God. Glorious truths in Hebrews 7.25, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 9.24, two chapters later, Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, not all, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God the Father on our behalf. And Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God. There's the same language as we see in Colossians who is interceding for us. Many, many others, and, and the six or seven or eight that I have listed at the bottom of the slide are not all of them. So often, Scripture emphasizes the place of Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Secondly, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 now, we see a call to set your minds on things that are above. Language sounds quite similar to the beginning of verse 1, and so perhaps we think it's just repetition, but I think God is nuancing this to say an, a critical and central part of this is your mind, how you think about unseen spiritual realities, how you picture them, how you understand them, and their implications for your life. In other words, don't let your mind, again, be caught up on things about this life on this earth and miss the, the invisible realities because you're looking at all the visible realities. This is really saying, orient your whole life around 
the things that heaven is about. Be heavenly minded. David Garland, it's the direction our lives are to aim at because it's where we're ultimately going and it's what matters most. J.B. Lightfoot, you must not only seek heaven, you must also think heaven. There are two very, very different operating systems. Chapter 2, what humans propose as the answer and help for life. And chapter 3, what God offers in Christ as the help for life. So, Romans 12, 2, perhaps came to some of your minds. Don't be conformed. Three big words in here that are critical. First of all, don't let the world conform you to its pattern. Don't follow the pattern of the rest of humanity that looks here for answers because they have no hope in God. Be transformed. Be radically changed. And that transformation happens by renewing, feeding your mind bit by bit by bit, one degree of glory to the next, each day of our lives, for how a man thinks, Proverbs tells us, is who he really is. Paul in 2 Corinthians has two references to the mind and thoughts in particular, pretty close together at the beginning of chapter 10 and then at the beginning of chapter 11. In chapter 10, he calls us in a spiritual warfare to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And it's because of the fear that he expresses in the next chapter, I'm fearful, I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a pure, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Perhaps Paul's longer emphasis in 1 Corinthians 2 is most helpful. I would encourage you to at least write that reference here or in your notes, in your Bibles, however you do it, to just know really the whole chapter deals with this. Uh, you can turn there. I'm, I don't have a slide. I'm just going to read you a few lines from it. But what I want you to know is the last sentence, the last thought of the whole chapter where all of this is pointing to is that in Christ we have been given the means, the capacity to think like Christ, to think his thoughts, to have his thoughts actually take over and transform and renew us. So Paul talks here about coming to the church and coming to preach the gospel, not in lofty speech or wisdom, but a demonstration of the spirit and of the power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Among the mature, we impart wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are all doomed to pass away. Are you seeing the same emphasis here? But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. I'm going to skip down now if you're following along, down to verse 12. What we have received, those of us who believe in Christ, is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, capital S, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That's what Colossians 3 is pressing us toward. So we're imparting words not taught by human wisdom. They look foolish to the world when they read these things, but they're taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then down to verse 16. Who's understood the mind of the Lord, which includes the scriptures, so as to instruct him? None of us. But he's given us a mind to see things and think through things the way that Christ does. That's just one of the staggering things about setting our minds on things above. 
Sam Storms again. Holiness comes not from rigorous asceticism or self-restraint, that was chapter two, but from a mind captivated and controlled by the beauty and majesty of the risen Christ and all that we are in him in the heavenlies. So pause for just a brief application here. Are there earthly things, troubles or pleasures? Are there earthly things, temporary things of this life that are so occupying your mind, you're not setting it on the things above? Maybe your mind goes there occasionally, but you keep thinking so much horizontally. And God is saying, if you will just keep that focus, you're either going to think about the physical or you're going to think about the spiritual. You're either going to follow human wisdom, your own, or other humans, or you're going to follow the wisdom of Christ. You're either going to center your life on this earth or you're going to center it on the kingdom to come. So the call here is look up. Keep your mind locked in there. Keep from being distracted by the lesser things of this world that ultimately can't help you. Here's the way John Owen put it in one of his books, The Glory of Christ. Let us live in the constant contemplation. There's the mind. The constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. And virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us, and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. It will fix the soul to that object which is suited to give it delight, complacency, and satisfaction. When the mind is filled with the thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul cleaves to him with intense affections, they will cast out or not give admittance to those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls in this as a constant view of Christ and his glory. If you're watching the clock, you're perhaps a bit worried. The other two verses will go faster. Verses three and four really now give us two realities that Paul pulls to the forefront. They're gospel promises that should profoundly alter or affect or change how we look at everything, how we look at ourselves, how we look at our life here on earth, how we look at our sanctification, how we look at our present and our future. For you have died. So go back to chapter 2, verse 20. There it was stated, if you have died, now it's stated as a hard reality. You have died. Let me remind you of that. If you've been raised, verse 1, you have previous to that died. And now your raised life is actually hidden with Christ in God. Amazing, amazing truth. So again, remember Ephesians 2.6, that he has seated us in some way in a spiritual reality in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Um, implications of this, just a couple of them quickly. In ways we cannot see, number one, the Godhead is the sole source of life. You could add to that also of love, of joy, of peace, of every single thing that comes from God. Its ultimate source is there. We have no capacity to keep ourselves alive, nor can anything in this world. We might think of it perhaps similarly to a baby in the womb that's given life 
and it's kept alive, not by what it is doing, but by what the mother's body is doing for it and in it. It's moving, not as the cause of its growth, but the result or the effect of the mother's life coursing through the baby's life. So Jesus put it this way in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. Or if you remember John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm it. I'm the only source of it. And one aspect of the life I give is you'll never perish. John 3, 16. Secondly, it's portraying how secure and safe we are in Christ, in God, how protected we are. This isn't a great illustration, but it's like moving through this light life and going from having a Nerf gun to try to do battle, to being put in God's tank, indestructible tank, to do battle. Further, in John 10, 28 and 29, he says, I give them eternal life, they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Last week's song that we closed our service with, one that's very meaningful to many of us, he will hold me fast. But he'll hold me fast in himself. Don't just picture it with hands. Picture it that he's actually embedded you into himself. And he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me, each believer, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them. And now notice, out of my father's hand. Jesus has given us this double sense of security. The son and the father both guarding and protecting. And so we get the great passage in Romans 8 that we won't because of time take time to read now. Uh, I'll put it in the email in full with all of its glorious colors. But just all of these questions, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us? Every single time the answer is no one because God in Christ has sealed us, secured us, all the forces Everything that tries to separate us from the love of God cannot. We get a life from Christ, a hidden life that is literally out of this world. Good. David Garland describes it this way. Outsiders may mistake them, Christians, for weak, insignificant, dishonored fools for Christ. Little knowing because it's hidden from their eyes that Christians are tied to the ruler of the universe or embedded in him and destined to reign with him glory. But Garland brings out a point here that I think is really fitting and a good warning and perhaps an encouragement to some of you. This hiddenness the discrepancy because between what looks like reality or what's reality and what looks like it appearances can also cause tension with Christians. They may also doubt the reality or the realness of God's transforming power in their lives. And he gives the illustration like an athlete who's had successful knee surgery but still favors the knee. A Christian may continue to limp through life. Believers may not believe that God is renewing them, or they may be unwilling to allow God's renewing power to take hold. Not talk hold, take hold. Hear that last line again. 
I think too many Christians are unwilling to allow God's renewing power to take hold. So the question that Jesus asked at Lazarus' gravesite is a fitting one here. Do you believe this? Do you believe what Colossians is describing? Do you believe it so that it is profoundly shaping the way you look at everything else in life on this planet? When you think about being in Christ, do you think about being in the heavenly places with him? Do you see that you're seated with him right now? Right now, you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies if you're his child. Or do you tend to focus more on being stuck in this world in a decaying body and world? Do you look at things with your physical eyes more or your spiritual eyes of your heart? Do you walk by sight or do you walk by faith? Huge implications for our lives, brothers and sisters. Huge implications. Finally, verse 4. As great as everything we've been told, it gets even better. Paul just very briefly in a short sentence just tells us where it's ultimately all pointing toward. When Christ, and notice who is your life, that's not a, that's not a light statement, that's a massive truth right in there. Uh, just reinforcing what we just saw in verse 3, that your life, the way you're kept alive is hidden, being hidden with Christ and in Christ. But when Christ who is your life, appears, an incredible appearing. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Not only will that be electrifying, but added to that, he incredibly includes us, that you will also appear with him in glory, what we doctrinally call the glorification of believers. Romans 8, 18 and 19. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time as hard as they are, as tear-filled as they are, as long and agonizing as they are, are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for, and you would think it would say the revealing of Christ, but it goes even beyond that to the revealing of the sons of God. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Same word. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be made like, like him because we'll see him as he is. So the drive then for the rest of what we'll see in Colossians. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. And then one more, Philippians 3, 18 to 21. Many... Uh, Paul says, and I've told you about him before, I'm going to tell you now again with tears. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their billy, and their glor they glory in their shame. But here's the line I want you to note. I hadn't noticed before. With minds set on earthly things. See the connection to Colossians 3 now? That's walking as an enemy to the cross if your mind is set on earthly things. Because our citizenship is in heaven, in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And from there we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him. 
J.B. Lightfoot, the veil which now shrouds your high life from others and even partly from yourselves will then be withdrawn. The shades will be thrown open. The world which persecutes, despises, ignores now will then be blinded with the dazzling glory of the revelation. So now I bring you back to a short phrase in Colossians 1.27 near the very end of that long verse that Christ in you is the hope of glory and you in Christ hidden in God. So I love the way Paul put it in Philippians 3 as he thought about both past, present, and future realities. Not that I've already obtained this, and he's, he's talking about the desire for Christ and the resurrection power, but, or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has taken me into himself. Brothers, I don't consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead yet, I press on toward the goal for the prize, which is ultimately the glory of God, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there again, upward is set your mind on things above, seek the things above, and think this way, and hold true to what you have attained. Next time we open Colossians, we'll see that verses 1 to 4 have set a foundation for everything else that is to come in this chapter. But for now, we can just summarize from these four verses the whole of our salvation, the entire of, entirety of our sanctification, and the totality of our glorification is all the Lord's doing and not ours. Even all these commands, we'll talk about those, Ultimately, it is God who causes the growth, and it is all God. It is all Christ. As chapter 3, verse 11, in the middle of it, we'll say in those three powerful words, Christ is all.